Please turn with me in your Bibles or in your bulletin to Esther chapter 2. We're going to read the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Esther. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, reading through chapter 3, verse 6. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made her known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. When the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Proverbs chapter 3 tells us this. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous goes on to say, the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. That's the way life should work. That when you are wise and righteous, your life is blessed and easy and comfortable. And you get all kinds of honor and accolades for your righteousness and your wisdom. And those who reject the word of the Lord and live in rebellion, they should live a really hard and difficult life. That's the way life should work. But it rarely does in this fallen world. I came across a thought-provoking quote this week by a man who is a magazine writer. His name is Mignon McLaughlin. But here's the quote. Society honors its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Let me read it again. This is one of those quotes you have to think about for a minute. Society honors its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. In other words, 
our culture, that's the way cultures work in this fallen world, that our culture will tend to honor those who reflect and promote its values and its morals today. But at the same time, our culture will tend to, to um, look at those who have challenged and defied its morals and its values in the past. How can it honor both? Those who promote and and uh, advocate for the morals of culture being promoted when they're living, but when you look back in the past, the culture tends to deify those who challenged those morals, those who took difficult and unpopular stands in order to bring change to the world. Those are the people that history remembers. Well, this is relevant, and I think even a little ominous for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, disciples. We are, as we've been seeing in this book of Esther, we are like Esther and Mordecai, the Jews in the days of King Ahasuerus, we too are exiles in our culture. We live in a culture in the midst of a society that does not recognize our God as a whole, and as a whole lives in rebellion. We are exiles, therefore, as exiles, we have seen that it's the biblical command to us that we are to lovingly, humbly challenge the values, the goals, the purposes of the culture in which we live. And when we become popular in the eyes of our fallen culture, it's a dangerous thing. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, woe to you when people speak well of you, for so did their fathers, so their fathers did to the false prophets. When the society around you is giving you a lot of honor and accolades, it's a time to do a little assessment and say, maybe I'm living more for the culture than for the kingdom of God. One reason that what God honors has such little value in the world is because of what scripture tells us. If we go back to Proverbs again, chapter 15, verse 33. It says, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. This is how honor comes in the kingdom of God. It comes through the fear of the Lord and humility. It says the same thing in chapter 22 of Proverbs, verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Fear of the Lord and humility. Those are the things that bring you honor in the kingdom of God. But in this fallen world, as sinners, as we are sinners in a fallen world, too often it takes going through trials and tribulation for us to learn humility and to learn the fear of the Lord. And so that's why God's people often suffer. As we've been introduced to the story of Esther, we've been focused on her story last week. This week we shift the focus to Mordecai. Mordecai was, remember, her first cousin, but she was an orphan. Her parents died, and so Mordecai was her adoptive father. He had taken her into his home and raised her as his own daughter. Well, Mordecai gets a lesson as we see how God works in his life, as we get introduced to him and see how God uses his life to set up the great conflict that's going to drive this whole story in the book of Esther. But Mordecai is going to have to learn what it means to be honored. Honored in this world as opposed to honored in the kingdom of God. The first thing we see is that Mordecai is denied a proper honor, an honor he should have received. That's what happens at the end of chapter two. 
To remind you of, of what happened earlier, Esther has won this sordid contest by which she became the queen of Persia. King Ahasuerus has taken her to replace the queen that he banished. She is now, this former orphan Jewish girl is now the queen of Persia. But here the focus turns to Mordecai, and it's, as we're introduced to him at the end of chapter 2, it says he's sitting at the king's gate. Now, you remember back in chapter 2, when Esther was taken into the palace for this contest, it said he hung around outside the palace to see what was going on there. And so, when you read this, it says, okay, he's sitting at the king's gate. Well, you get this idea, well, he's, he's loitering, he's goofing off, hanging out outside the king's door. That's not what sitting at the king's gate means. It actually is a, a euphemism. It actually has a very distinct meaning to it. The king's gate was actually a building. In the city of Susa, at the king's palace, you'd have a wall around the palace, and at the main gate, attached to that main gate, you would have a building, a large building. And it was the place where uh, government business was done, so to speak. It's where uh, judges would, uh, would uh, give out their judgments. It's where the government officials would work and do their business. Kind of like the Center County Courthouse up in Belfont. That's really what the King's Gate was. It was where the civil government operated. So those that were sitting in the King's Gate what it meant was they had a position in the king's government. And so, you know, it's interesting. If you go online, you can uh, Google Susa, the city of, of Persia, um, and put King's Gate in there. And you'll, what will come up, you'll actually see a picture. They've done a lot of archaeological digs there. And you can see a picture of the outline that still remains from the King's Gate in Susa. And actually, you'll probably see pictures, drawings they've done of what it would have looked like originally. To sit in the king's gate is kind of like to say today a judge is sitting on the bench. That doesn't mean he's literally sitting on a bench somewhere. It might, but it doesn't literally mean that. It means he's in a position of authority. And that's what Mordecai had. He had a job. He was a civil servant of some sort. We don't know what, what level. It might have been a very low level. It might have been higher. One commentator actually speculated, and I think it's probably a good, good guess, that he probably got the position because Esther gave him a favor. Esther did a favor for him with her influence as the new queen of Persia. Here's her adoptive father who's given her so much, she rewards him by finding a position for him in the, in the king's government. But it's at this point that Mordecai, a very passive way, he actually becomes a key figure in the history of God's people. It just so happens that he hears about a plot to assassinate the king now, how did that happen? Well, it happened, as we've seen already in Esther, it happened by God's providence. God providentially led, uh, led uh, Mordecai to hear about this assassination plot. Nothing happens by chance. As Albert Einstein once said, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. God is doing it. God is bringing this about. God is putting Mordecai in a place that he didn't seek out, but he's in a place to save the king's life. The traitors were two servants of the king. It says that they guarded the threshold. What that no doubt means is that they were the guards at the door to the king's residence in the palace. And so talk about guys you don't want to tick off. You know, these are the guys that would have easy access to the king and his family. And they're the ones that were plotting his death. Mordecai tell, hears about it. He tells Esther... Esther tells the king, and the king sends out his men to investigate, to see whether this is true or not. 
Interestingly, it says that when Esther told the king, she did it in Mordecai's name, which means that she made sure that Mordecai got the credit for doing what he did to save the king's life. And the king's life is spared. They're arrested, they're tried, and they're hanged. One of the first surprises we see in Mordecai's life in this story is that he gets nothing out of it. I mean, if you know anything about ancient kings and kingdoms, if somebody saves your life, you'd better repay them well. You'd better reward that kind of loyalty. And kings always did. They would give them riches, they would give them a position, they would give them honor, because you want to reward that kind of loyalty if you're a king, because you've always got people out there gunning for you. But Mordecai gets nothing. Matter of fact, it says the only thing that happened was it was recorded in the official history, the king's official history. It was recorded in the books, what Mordecai had done. But Mordecai gets nothing. Actually, that little fact is going to become important later in the story if you've read ahead. It was recorded in the history. Remember that. But it's even more surprising because what happens the very next verse, the very first verse of chapter 3, what you see there is that there's an honor that's unjustly given. Given to somebody who didn't deserve it. After Mordecai, who deserved honor from the king, got nothing, the very next thing that the text says is that this despicable guy gets honored. It says in verse 1, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. The number two position in the kingdom. There was no other official higher than Haman in the king's court. He was the number two guy, the right-hand man of the king. Now, if you've read the story before, if you know the story of Esther, you know that Haman was a bad guy. He was arrogant. He was power-hungry. He was despicable. And it makes you wonder what kind of favor the king owed him that he would put him in such a high position. But even if you don't know the story, even if that was new to you, there's a red flag in the story itself. I thought that was kind of humorous. It says, all the king's servants bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. That's funny to me because that's what you do to higher officials in a king's government. You, you bow to them. You, you show honor to them. It's, a, a it's like, like if you're in the military saluting a superior officer. It was something that was expected of you. Why did the king have to command it of these underlings of Haman? Because Haman was such a despicable guy, they probably found it hard to show him that honor. But the king commanded it to make sure that it would happen. But Mordecai would not. Mordecai defied the king's command and refused to bow and give homage to Haman. This is another place where you kind of wish the, the, the writer had given us some insight into what was going on in, in Mordecai's mind and his heart. Why didn't he bow? Now, we would like to think it was for spiritual religious reasons. We'd like to think that, that uh, Mordecai didn't bow to Haman because he was thinking the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thinking when they refused to bow to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had created in Babylon. But we know from other Old Testament passages, even from other references here in the book of Esther, that it was that the Jewish people did not consider it wrong to bow to somebody who was an authority over them in civil government. We see it in a number of Old Testament stories where the people of God will bow 
to kings and people who are in authority over them. Matter of fact, later in the story, Mordecai himself will go into the king's presence and you can only assume that he must have bowed before the king because that's what everybody had to do at the cost of their own life. So it wasn't that for religious reasons per se that he didn't bow to Haman. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that we are to show honor to those who are in authority over us, specifically to show honor to those who are in authority over us in the civil government. It says, be subject to the governing authorities and pay to all what is owed to them, honor to whom honor is due. And Peter very specifically says in 1 Peter 2, 17, honor the emperor. Now we understand that that's honoring the position because God has placed those authorities over us. That doesn't mean that the person in that position is necessarily honorable. We are to show honor to our president even if we think the person who is the president is not an honorable person. We are to honor his position. That's what the Lord expects of us. And so since bowing was an acceptable cultural way of expressing honor to Haman and to the king, therefore Mordecai should have done that, but he refused. It's interesting that the other officials aren't so concerned about the sign of disrespect to Haman. You see what their concern is? It's like, but Mordecai, you're disobeying a direct order of the king. You know, we kind of like, you know, we kind of like your, your attitude towards Haman. You know, he's kind of a bad guy, but, but the king has commanded that you bow. Why won't you bow? What's wrong with bowing? Get it, get it done. Save your life here. Well, they bring it up to him every day. He refuses. And finally, they, these other officials, go to Haman and tell them what Mordecai has been refusing to do. And it says he's filled with fury. And this is where there's another interesting twist, kind of a surprising element in the story, is that Haman goes after the entire Jewish race here. Think about that. Talk about a response that is inappropriate to the offense. Because Mordecai wouldn't bow in a sign of respect to him, he decides to commit ethnic cleansing. He, he decides to, do, to commit genocide and wipe out the Jewish race. Why would he do that? Why would he generalize from this small thing to destroying the entire Jewish race? Well, I think the writer intends for us to pick up on a hint here. He calls Haman the Agagite. The Agagite. If you know Old Testament history, that name, and it's certainly the original readers of the story understood what that meant. It's connecting Haman to King Agag. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites have a very special place in God's history of his enemies. Because the Amalekites, after God had delivered the people of Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, here are all these people who have come out of Egypt. He's delivered them by all the plagues. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. He's brought them into the wilderness. These are former slaves. And they're vulnerable. They've not yet been established as a nation at Mount Sinai. It's between when they crossed the Red Sea and when they came to Mount Sinai. And the Amalekites were a bunch of raiders. They were kind of like uh, desert pirates kind of thing. They, they, they would attack people that came through their territory in the wilderness. And they were the first enemy of God's people to attack them after the Exodus. The very first enemies of God's people who attacked them. And so they got a special curse from God. 
after God delivered his people miraculously, remember it's a story of how Moses had to keep his arms up to make sure that the, the people of God would keep winning the, the battle. And then when his arms would get tired and start to go down, they'd start to lose. And so he had uh, two that would help him keep his arms up. You know, a miraculous delivery showed it was God who gave the deliverance. Then God gives this curse against the Amalekites. He says, this is from Exodus 17, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord had promised that the Amalekites would be wiped from the face of the earth. Fast forward to the time of Saul, the first king of Israel. King Saul... And just for future reference, King Saul was an ancestor of who? Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai was a son of Kish. Kish was the father of Saul. So Mordecai was, an ans- was a descendant of, of uh, King Saul. Well, King Saul becomes king, and the Lord gives him the command to destroy the Amalekites. But Saul refuses. He allows King Agag of the Amalekites to live. And God sends his prophet Samuel to King Saul. And he says, since you have refused to obey the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It was a watershed moment in the history of the kingship of Israel. Haman is an Agagite. Now, I don't know how that worked. If, if, if the Amalekites were wiped out at that time, it, it doesn't appear that they were totally wiped out. He may have, he probably was a literal descendant of the Malachites, but at the very least, the writer wants us to make the connection between Haman and King Agag as the king of the kind of ultimate enemy of God's people. This is, the writer wants us to see this as a manifestation of the eternal conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God's people and the world that stands opposed to God Matter of fact, it's interesting, in the first century, if you look at Jewish writings in the first century, sometimes they called the Romans Agagites because they wanted to associate them with what King Agag and the Amalekites stood for. Having spent probably too much time on that, I want to make it clear that's not the point of the sermon. That's, that's actually just setting the table, so to speak, for where this goes from here on out. What I want to now is kind of narrow the focus to is just kind of where we're at in the story and allow you to, for a second, put yourself in the shoes of Mordecai and just think for a moment how he's responding to what God's providence is doing in his life. He was denied an honor he should have received and he watched while God's enemy is given the position of highest honor in the kingdom and he's expected to bow and give deference to this enemy of God. This is the way that Mordecai has to wrestle with this I think one of the hardest aspects of being an exile in a foreign culture like we are, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Our ultimate king and Lord is Jesus Christ. One of the hardest things of living in an exile in a culture that does not recognize him as Lord, that doesn't know our God and does not serve our God, is that we have to live where the dishonorable is honored and where the honorable is dishonored. We see it all the time, all around us. 
There's a psalmist by the name of Asaph who wrestled with this classic passage of scripture that deals with this, this incongruity that God is sovereign, God's on the throne, God is good, God is faithful to his people, and yet the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And this is how Asaph processed it. And he kind of walks us through how he processed, how he dealt with this by faith. He starts out with a statement of faith in, in Psalm 73, verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good, God is faithful, God cares for his people, God, God has redeemed his people, God will deliver his people. This is his faith. But, he says in verse two, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes on to talk about just observing how the wicked in his day were prospering and rich and, and powerful and influential. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. He goes on and on talking about how the wicked are prospering. And then he looks at his own life, beginning over in verse 12 and compares his own service to the Lord. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So many places in scripture deal with this. How can God's people suffer while the righteous prosper in this world? What does Asaph do to try to resolve this dilemma? He does what all of us should always do when we are struggling with these kinds of issues. He goes to church. He goes to where the means of grace are given to God's people. He goes to where the word of God is proclaimed. He goes to where redemption is celebrated and he's given an eternal perspective. He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end, the end of the wicked, the end of those who reject God, the end who refuse to put their faith in the Lord. Those who live in rebellion, he saw their end. He heard a good sermon, hellfire and brimstone sermon on judgment, I'm sure, to give him some eternal perspective to understand that our life in this fallen world with the, the dominance of worldly values is only like a breath. It's like the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. But judgment is coming and the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will suffer for eternity. He was given an eternal perspective and now he's able to go back and look at his life and see it from an entirely different perspective. He says, uh, down in verse 18. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away to utterly by terrors. But then in verse 23, he reflects on his own eternal destiny. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. He ends by saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see how he processed that and ended up in a place of rejoicing and, and consolation and comfort and hope. That's what Mordecai needed to learn through this experience. He had to wait for the Lord's honor, wait for the Lord's reward. We know how it ends. We've read the end of the whole book. Book of Revelation teaches us that in the end, Jesus Christ is returning. 
and he is going to defeat all of his enemies. And he is going to destroy all that is sinful and rebellious. And he is going to establish his eternal kingdom on earth. It'll be a perfect kingdom without sin, without suffering. And we will enter into that reward. We will reign with him. We will be his people. And we will serve him forever in a place of great blessing beyond our imagination. That's the big picture that enables us to care less and less about earthly rewards and earthly honors and to live for the eternal ones that Christ offers. To hear our Lord say when our life is finished, well done, good and faithful servant. I guarantee you when you die, everybody in this room, the world's gonna forget you pretty quickly. It's gonna move on. The hole that you've left is gonna get filled and you're gonna be forgotten. But that's not what we live for. We don't live for the reputation, the rewards, the honors that this world has to offer. We live for eternity. Jesus said in Luke chapter six, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now notice what he's saying. You don't expect to get honored and rewarded for living as a disciple of Christ, doing good works and loving others and serving God. Don't expect anything in this world in return. But the very next thing he says is, and your reward will be great. Obviously, he's not talking about reward in this world. He's talking about reward in the world to come. The Lord always talks about reward. We, we, we know that everything's by grace. And even the Lord's rewards to us are his grace that are working in and through us. But it all gives glory to him. And that's the wonderful thing about reward and honor in the kingdom of God is ultimately we lay our crowns before his throne and he receives all the glory because it all came from him originally. That's the satisfying kind of reward. But I think as we try to apply this to our own life, the questions have to be asked. How important is your earthly reputation to you? How important are earthly honors to you? How important are earthly rewards to you? How important is it to you that you have a, a honorable reputation in your job? That, you, that others look up to you, that others wanna be like you? Or what about in your schooling, in terms of what degrees you have after your name or your academic record? How important is it to you that you receive earthly honors and rewards? How important is it to you in terms of the kind of car you drive or the house that you live in or the neighborhood that you live in or the friends that you have? How important is it to you that you gain earthly honor and earthly rewards for these things? How about the accomplishments of your children? I know a lot of people that live for the accomplishments, the rewards that their children earn in this world. So they can brag about their children, their grandchildren. It's just a way of transferring the same sin onto your children in the next generation. How about your reputation in church? It's so important to us when we hang out with our brothers and sisters in Christ within the, the boundaries of the church that we be seen as righteous people, that we be seen as pious, that we be seen as spiritual. And that reputation, unfortunately, too often can get focused on earthly rewards and earthly benefits and not eternal ones. How important it is to, to you that you be vindicated in every situation. Some of you might be in conflict with your brothers and sisters in Christ. How important to you is that you be vindicated? Is that really the ultimate goal? That you come out of this looking as though you had not done anything wrong? That the other person did everything wrong? 
In most every argument between brothers and sisters, between husbands and wives, between Christians among each other, at some point it gets to the point where somebody's got to lie down that goal of being vindicated and accept the fact that maybe my reputation's going to take a hit here, but I believe in the gospel. I believe in Christ. I want to bring about reconciliation to honor him. And so I'm willing to sacrifice that. There is a reputation in the New Testament that we should be striving for. It's called blamelessness. In other words, holiness before the world, doing good works, loving God and loving others well, that should be our reputation. Not so much our career, not so much our income, not so much our friends, not so much our athletic accomplishments. That's the only reputation in the world that we should worry about. And sometimes things will happen that feels that we feel that, that, that even that reputation is being taken from us. I once had a situation in leadership with some of the leaders in one of the churches where I served, where we got into a disagreement, which happens often among leaders of a church, about philosophy of ministry, about which direction the church should take. And I had a small group of elders who felt very strongly that the church needed to go in a different way in which, uh, which I and some of the other elders wanted to go. And unfortunately, it got to the point where they became so desperate to change the direction of the church that they started, I felt, uh, actually hurting my reputation, saying things about me, about my gifts, about my role in the church that I thought was really hurting my reputation, making it harder for me to do ministry because people, they were causing people to see me in a way that I didn't think was fair or accurate. And I wrestled with what to do about that because I knew that if I kind of went out there and publicly started defending myself, which is what my, my tendency would do, like we all want to be vindicated. I wanted to go out and defend myself, but I knew if I did that, it would split the church. And all of a sudden, it would be about who's with the pastor, who's with the elders, who's with... And I, 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 didn't, I, I could see that coming. I didn't want to do that. But it was so hard for me to let my reputation be tarnished, so to speak, among my brothers and sisters. And as I wrestled with that, I just so much appreciate my, the wisdom of my wife because she kept pointing me to the example of Christ. She would say, remember Christ. The, 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 the King James says that he made himself of no reputation in order to save us. He was willing to sacrifice all, including his good reputation, in order to save us. In Isaiah chapter 53, it describes this in advance, hundreds of years before it happened. He said this about Jesus Christ. He said, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. Instead of seeking vindication for his absolute perfect holiness in thought, word, and deed, he allowed himself to be considered a sinner and he bore the wrath of God in our place. Is it too much a sacrifice for me sometimes to lay that down before other brothers and sisters? In Philippians 2, Paul tells us to use that as an example. It's interesting. Philippians 2 is talking about Christ dying and being raised from the dead for our justification. But he does it, he talks about it not in terms of describing how we are saved, but to show Christ as an example to us of how to pursue glory and honor. This is what he says. He begins by talking about how we need to be humble. We need to seek unity in the body and we need to be humble. And then he says in verse five of Philippians two, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that's where that phrase, made himself of no reputation, that's how the King James translates that phrase. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He laid it all out for us and sacrificed it entirely. Therefore, here's Paul's point, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul's saying. Here's the path to glory. Path to glory is dying to self and living to Christ. Laying down your reputation, if that's what it means. Now, I will admit there are times where you ought to defend your reputation. Paul did it. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his reputation as an apostle. But why did he do it? Not for his own personal glory, not for his own personal reward, but because if what his enemies were saying about him was accepted as true, it, it detracted from and took away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's because of the gospel he defended himself. So when your reputation is being attacked, when you feel the need to be vindicated, you have to ask yourself the hard question, why? Why do I want to be vindicated? Is it for my glory or his? Is it for my earthly benefit or his eternal kingdom? Faithfulness and obedience to Christ is going to make us unpopular in a fallen culture like ours. But the Holy Spirit and the word of God are given to us as means of grace to strengthen our faith and give us eternal perspective so that we can see that the rewards of this world are like dust. They're gonna blow away in just a moment. The honor that this world has to give is nothing. It's like soap bubbles. It's there for a second, it's gone. But the reward that the Lord offers to his children who live by faith and wait upon him and wait for his honor, wait for his reward, is eternal and it's vast beyond your imagination. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, interesting way that he looks at this, he does a what if. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then he goes on to say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you're a Christian and you're living for honor and reward in this life, in this world, and Christ is not raised from the dead, then you are the, be the most pitied people on the earth because you're living for future rewards beyond death that obviously don't exist if Christ is not risen from the dead. But the good news is that Paul goes on to say, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So all of that is real, it's true, and it's waiting for those who put their faith in him. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult to live as disciples of Christ among friends and relatives and co-workers and students who don't see the world as we see it, who don't see you as we see you by faith through your word and through your spirit. Father, Help us to endure the, the shame, the disrespect, 
that the world casts upon your people. Lord, help us to remain firm, not to respond in arrogance or anger, but to respond humbly, to respond as our Lord Jesus responded, doing what is best for, for, to, to love others and to show the glory of God. Lord, give us wisdom. It takes great wisdom to know how to live as faithful disciples. Help us, we pray, and give us that eternal perspective so that our hope might be strengthened. We pray in Christ's name, amen.